Hi, this is Isaac Arthur. Welcome to the show and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash Isaac Arthur and use my code Isaac Arthur. This video is sponsored by CuriosityStream. Get access to my streaming video service, Nebula, when you sign up for CuriosityStream using the link in the description. Many things could cause people to flee to the stars, be it a flight from ruin or a pursuit of new worlds and opportunities, but such an exodus might be a protracted or even perpetual state around which a civilization might arise. So last week we were looking at future types of government and this week we'll be continuing that discussion as we contemplate the popular science fiction trope of wandering fleets with no homeworld to call their own, often operating under some oligarchy of ship captains, something called a navarchy, and we'll explore what might cause such a civilization to exist and how they might operate. We see this nomadic fleet civilizations in many a story, but two of the best known are the remnant survivals in Battlestar Galactica, whose homeworlds were taken away by the Cylons, a race of artificial intelligences they had made, and the Korans of Mass Effect, whose homeworld was taken away by the Geth, a race of artificial intelligences they had made. There are also the Eldar Craftworlds in Warhammer 40,000, giant ships that fled their old civilization's descent into chaotic debauchery. Even J.R.R. Tolkien's classic Lord of the Rings series mentions an island civilization called Numenor that rose to great power on land and sea before playing with fire and getting burned, leaving its handful of survivors to found the realms in exile of Arnor and Gondor. Fleeing a natural disaster, an enemy, or a civilization back home that is turned repugnant certainly seems like good reasons to jump aboard every available ship and make an exodus. Often the in-story reason for the exile or exodus is that their civilization did something forbidden or just very foolish, and the survivors were those few lucky or pure enough to avoid the calamity and flee, with some parallels to Noah's Ark or Lot's flight from Sodom, to name two of the better known tales out of countless ones about flight from ruination. Many of the pilgrims who settled the North Atlantic seaboard saw themselves as fleeing flawed civilizations, accurate or not, and this appears to be a fairly common theme for colonists. As it was a driving motivation, it obviously has a big impact on how the civilization would organize itself. That could compound a lot too. If your civilization was fleeing a collapse, or perceived collapse, whose corporate was a descent into excess and debauchery, and you're doing it on board a ragtag, patchwork fleet always short of resources, your new, nomad culture probably has a double dose of austerity and asceticism driving it on as you are afraid of too relaxed and pleasant a lifestyle and are busy barely eking out an existence. Emphasis on perceived descent though because for our purposes today, it doesn't matter if the culture actually was decadent or wicked or being punished, just that the people fleeing it think so at the time. And some civilization plowing through space for generations might come to perceive their distant ancestors as such a civilization, even if the original folks on the ships did not. A fleet of generation ships, for instance, may have left a glorious and prosperous civilization for a thousand year journey to spread humanity out to new worlds, and come to think of it, after many generations, as a flight from some calamity. They might see themselves as spending generations wandering the desert of space for their new homeland, a paradise they are traveling toward. Alternatively, they might be afraid of settling worlds, as opposed to living on ships, as they might come to think of it as some sort of spiritual trap and opt not to settle their original destination system in favor of merely stopping to gather up raw materials. 
Or they might be afraid of pursuit, they fled and the enemy follows them, always one step behind, so they dare not settle. Indeed, that need not be the truth either. Generations of cultural mutation and existing ship hierarchies not wanting to give up control might result in them fleeing an enemy that long since stopped pursuing them, or ceased existing, or had never existed except in their shared nightmare. There are many reasons a civilization might exist as nomads, and it might not be perceived as a necessity either. Those who ply the space lanes carrying cargo from world to world or artificial habitat to artificial habitat might simply be a culture that emerges all on its own. As an example, it's popular in science fiction for some great galactic capital world to be a planet-wide city, an ecumenopolis, of a trillion citizens unable to grow their own food and forced to import it. As we looked at in our episodes on that topic, that shouldn't actually be an issue for them, but if we assumed a fleet of ships had to bring that food in from dedicated agricultural worlds or space farms, they would presumably need to bring in around a trillion tons of cargo a year to keep that world fed. Even if they only needed one crew member for every thousand tons of cargo brought in per year, that is a billion people and more than enough for a splinter civilization all on its own, or in truth, several hundred. In Battlestar Galactica we have a fleet of 50,000 people on board and it's easy enough to view that as its own culture, if we're thinking of that in terms of a billion folks employed for generations just running food to an Echimonopolis hive world, that would be enough for 20,000 of those Battlestar Galactica cultures, meaning you could conceivably have a nomad fleet culture not for running food to one specific Echimonopolis, but one entirely devoted just to the import of strawberries or pineapples or mangoes. Heck, they might have skirmishes between them over docking rights, space lanes, or trying to sabotage the supply chain of their rivals. Alternatively, you might have mobile hydroponic ships that grew food and delivered it to myriad asteroid mines or space habitats, wandering the space lanes for centuries without ever stopping at the same place twice as they sought their next customer. Now we can snicker at that notion a bit, and again as we saw in our episode on planet-wide cities, they probably would grow most of their own food. But in something immense like a Dyson Swarm, composed of hundreds of trillions of habitats with hundreds of thousands of people on each, if you supply some good you could easily visit a new habitat every week, and the sun would burn out before you ever visited a single percent of them. More to the point, even if most of your commerce and passenger ships were heavily automated and most production was localized to each habitat, you'd still have trillions of ships meandering around the solar system at any given time and that's just one system out of billions in our galaxy alone. So even without contemplating interstellar colonial fleets or those fleeing disasters, we've got plenty of room for nomadic space fleets, but let's contemplate the colonial example for a moment. In our Generation Ships and Life in a Space Colony series, we contemplated something called a Gardener Ship or Gardener Fleet. This is a ship meant to travel for many decades to reach a new system, pause to resupply and set up a colony, then move onward to make another, and another, and another, headed outward slowly to the Galactic Rim on a voyage of a million years. This is a very different setup than the classic colony ship or fleet because it's not leave Earth, arrive at a new home, it's a recognition that an interstellar ship needs to be so good at repairing and replacing parts, able to manufacture any and every component they need for the ships or the colony to be founded, that so long as they have raw materials and time, they can even create a new ship. Indeed, given rates at which folks can reproduce, they might leave Earth with 100,000 colonists, and a colonial blueprint calling for 100,000 settlers, and arrive a century later with four times that many people, given that Earth's population quadrupled in the 20th century. 
So they arrive at the original destination with four times as many folks as they need and the manufacturing capability to make all the materials those colonists would need. They just park around some resource-rich asteroid or moon, resupply and refuel, drop off however many folks want to stay, and depart with cargo hordes full of raw materials for them to turn into more colonial gear at the next location. They may even decide to build more ships, specialized ones to become more of a fleet or armada, or clones of a single one that depart towards different trajectories for other uninhabited systems. This is a culture, and these are nomads. They probably contain many ships, they may occasionally be joined by faster ships with less cargo or better drives from home or from prior colonies, or just elements that didn't slow down to colonize worlds and caught up with them eventually. They may have pieces of the fleet that lingered after they left and run to catch up, or vanguard elements that raced ahead to lay groundwork, or which broke off to settle some neighboring stars and returned to the main fleet at the next destination. Due to the slow travel time through interstellar space, such tangents and splits might last many years or even decades before a reunion, causing much cultural divergence inside the fleet. I can imagine a scenario where a large fleet like this traveled at 10 or 20% of light speed to a new destination a century away, while subfleets broke off to get all the other neighboring systems along the way. Of course we also have the option of interstellar laser highways, which allow near-light speed travel, but must be set up at the destination first to slow the ships down, so that a vanguard might race ahead to a rallying point a hundred light years ahead and build that terminus laser highway spot to slow its siblings down as they all spread out to settle worlds, building pushing lasers to send them on their way to that rally point, and all met up there over the course of a decade or so for some big festival and council and shipbuilding and overhauling enterprise before heading on to do it again. Some might remain behind, to serve as colonists or local interstellar commerce, others break for another destination as a new fleet, others might continue on with that original all the way to the edge of the galaxy or even beyond. It does beg the question of who is running the show on all these ships, and while there are many options it would seem like the natural default path would probably tend to be the captains, and that when working in groups they'd have some council of captains or an admiral, appointed or elected or picked on seniority or ship size or strength or whichever. Incidentally, any time you have multiple ships the person in charge is an admiral, or some other title besides captain like commodore, and the ship they are on is called their flagship. A bit of a tangent but something that's always irritated me about Star Trek, be it Captain Kirk or Picard, They are running the Federation flagship and always worried about getting promoted to Admiral and stuck at a desk back on Earth. In practice, Picard for instance would have been an Admiral and Riker would have been his flag captain, running and commanding the actual ship. Obviously future or fictional fleets can run themselves however they like, but in general military units have a commander in charge of a unit composed of many smaller units, who each have their own commander. The overall commander doesn't try to simultaneously run one of those smaller units as they are busy running the whole show, though of course many are prone to micromanaging, often to the despair of the subcommander in charge of whichever unit the actual commander spends their time with. A minor tangent but something that tends to irritate me a lot about science fiction that aims for realism by borrowing modern or recent historical examples but then misapplying them. This could be a bit different in some ragtag collection of nomad ships though, where the guy with the biggest ship is in charge and the setup is much more futile. You also don't necessarily need an overall commander. If the mission is conceptually straightforward, like colonizing, and takes decades per stop, each ship could pretty much run its own show and just have an informal council of whichever ships were present when they needed to call a meeting to pick their next destination, 
and a majority vote might not matter as if ten ships meet to pick their next destination and can't agree, six might go to one place, three to another, and a lone ship to yet another, and those six might get joined up by a squadron of ships from an entirely different fleet some centuries down the road. Countries kind of have to work with each other, shared borders that exist on a planet where the geography doesn't change much or quickly, but ships are mobile. Colonial Garner fleets really only require two inputs, raw materials and information, they need tech updates from back home and maps, maps of tiny new things in their way or which might be useful to them, and what systems are getting colonized, since once you set course in interstellar space your trajectory could be locked in for centuries, and showing up at some system that got colonized a decade before, after you spent a century and generations getting there, is going to be an enormous blow. Imagine if your fathers and their fathers and their fathers' fathers had worked their whole lives to plan out and execute a mission to colonize HIP 41378, a system 348 light years from Earth in the constellation of Cancer we found some exoplanets around a few years back. You've arrived only to pick up a signal from them as you were approaching saying welcome to Kepler Town, population 1 million, fuel and resources available for a fee, resource poachers will be treated as hostile pirates. Remember that your mobile nation and culture fixated for generations on this destination, the impact is likely to be enormous and include options like despair or rage, not a casual shrug. We can think of these ships as incredibly autonomous, needing no input but raw materials abundant throughout the galaxy and information, and even the latter is optional in that you might have all the tech you need and be roaming so far out there is no information anyone else could provide, and yet these two things still represent a jugular vein in their own way. And that lets us discuss what the day-to-day life on a nomad ship or fleet would be like. Obviously your tech and resources matter a lot. You might live in some neo-utopia where your only job is checking on some robots every few weeks, or you might be crammed into makeshift apartments under some cooling ducts, celebrating that you finally managed to bottle for some cloth to hang a curtain on the duct to get you some privacy. Either way though, the captain, or ruling council, has an awful lot of control over your life because you can't just jump ship. Whether you're a colonist on a century-long voyage that your great-great-grandparents signed you up for, or on some space freighter that stops at habitats every week for trade, while that ship is in motion, you're stuck there, and your freedoms are limited by the ship and its needs, or what the captain says those needs are anyway. Let's take a hypothetical case. You're with a colonial gardener armada traveling in deep space at 10% of light speed on a 30 light year journey through the void from your last stop to your next one, HIP 41378, which you plan to name Keplotown when you arrive there sometime around the year 7000 AD, it being 6700 AD right now, you're expecting to arrive in 300 years, or rather your fleet was when it left a century back and your grandfather signed up for the trip, and it is now 6800 AD. The fleet has gotten a tech update from Earth for a new interstellar laser array that can keep itself focused over light years and let a fast vanguard ship assemble such an array at the destination, using the technique we looked at in Exodus Fleet, of sending sequential solar meals and lasers that each slows the next meal down a bit more till the last one can arrive at a safe speed and slow your fleet down. This would let you do future trips to new stars faster than your old fusion drives, but the fleet determines that it can implement this mid-flight and shave some time off the voyage, but that they will need a ton of aluminum to create the giant mirror rays that will generate the pushing laser that will slow the armada down at the destination, and the big solar sails those ships will need to have for the lasers to hit. 
Your ship, the Grand Pioneer, gets selected to take on extra fuel and fusion reactors from its sister ships to slow down mid-flight and make a rendezvous with a large rogue body detected about a light year ahead and a light month to the side of your fleet's course. The plan is for you to detour and break to land on that rogue body, set up fusion reactors and mining equipment, build a giant prototype pushing laser, and process a ton of aluminum, then fill your cargo holds full of it and have that pushing laser shove you back up to 30% of light speed, not the 10% the fleet is moving at. Once you're up to a higher speed than the fleet, and at an overrun velocity with those ships, you'll start dropping the light sails you manufacture behind you and bouncing the pushing laser off your own sails, to hit those sails and slow them down to 10% of light speed, to be at a speed and position those ships from the main fleet can snatch the sails at and use them, then the laser you constructed will transfer to them and push them to a higher speed too. The Grand Pioneer, in the meantime, will continue ahead and arrive and begin deploying a sequence of light sails and still lasers toward the target sun to slow them and the fleet down. Again, see the episode Exodus Fleet for more details on how this system works. Now this may or may not be risky, the fleet might have enough reserve fuel that fueling your ship for an early slowdown and minor course change wasn't a worry, and they'd still have enough fuel to slow down if the first part of your mission failed. The Grand Pioneer is taking a pretty big gamble though, decelerating on its own toward a barely known tiny rock in deep space, then trying to race ahead of the fleet and deploy an unknown new technology to slow down. The main fleet might decide they don't want to risk accelerating with a laser until the Pioneer has successfully used it and deployed the Terminus laser at the destination and used it too. For the folks on the Grand Pioneer, and its 10,000 people, the risk is not a short thing though. In Year 1, or 101 of the main flight, they will begin slowing down and angling off to that rock, Pioneer's Gamble, a light year away, and they will arrive in Mission Year 112, 6812 AD. They calculate at the new speed possible with the laser sail design they will still need 70 years to travel to the Terminus destination, Kepler Town, and get the slowdown laser assembled, including speeding up and slowing down that second time. That gives them until Mission Year 230 to leave Pioneer's Gamble, but that's a loose state since if they fail, they can arrive later as there would be a colony there, whereas if they waited till then to leave they'd have done the main fleet no good at all. The captain, an old dog from Earth who's been crewing and commanding the Grand Pioneer since it left the Neptune dockyard a few thousand years ago, is utterly committed to getting this mission done as fast as possible. The engineer is less optimistic about timetables, and the XO, who is a promising young officer with an independent streak who got transferred to the Grand Pioneer in hopes it would cool him off, resents being sent away from the main fleet for a century or more, given that that is longer than he's even been alive. See, this fleet has life extension, as our 3,000 year old captain shows, but most of the crew is not that old. They all have children on a fairly modern timetable, and when they arrive at new systems, around 30 thus far, they tend to lose half their number to that new colony, and often build new ships and break the fleet in half too. But a few of the original ships like the Grand Pioneer and the Unity, flagship of a colonial fleet running a parallel course they sometimes exchange messages with, are still in service and kept the same captains the whole time. The Grand Pioneer's captain is like an institution, so is the engineer, they've both been around so long folks barely even remember their names, just their titles. So when they arrive in Mission Year 112, 6812 AD, they set to work. They're setting up fusion reactors to run on the deuterium on this frozen rock and exploring around for minerals, after about 8 years they are decently set up, they have hydroponics and power and mining going. This is where we get some breakdown. They are kids now helping on the mining who weren't even born till after the ship left the fleet 20 years ago. 
They've been raised on the whole notion of colonizing giant planets rather than one small ship a few kilometers long, and here they are on a giant rock hundreds of kilometers across. Indeed most of the ship's crew was born during the current fleet mission that began 120 years ago when they left the last new colony. That's what Gardner's ships do after all, breed new colonists between stops. So they start saying they're all for continuing the mission but they plan to stay here, some of them anyway. They'll turn Pioneer's Gamble into a deep space port and laser relay and carve some rotating habitats into it. The engineer is all for this as she wants to play with the new laser technology a lot and figures they can always build a new ship here too and catch up their fleet down the road if need be, and a bigger time investment into developing this port will let her play with some of the applications she envisions. The XO likes that notion too, at least when the ward's new ship were mentioned, as a new ship needs a new captain after all. Now the captain doesn't object to folks choosing to remain behind when they leave, but all this talk of making Pioneer's Gamble a port worries him that it will slow down their setup and departure. Every day they spend here is one more day the main fleet is moving along at 10% of light speed, not 30%. There's millions of folks in that fleet living and waiting to arrive at Kepler Town, and the sooner they get going the sooner the fleet arrives, and we're talking about shaving decades off the flight. And to the captain it's not just that one colony, it's all the future ones, and the better this first mission performs, the more likely they are to adopt it as their future approach. This is already a tense situation and that main fleet is now over a light year away, closer to Kepler Town, so communications are slow and business focused, folks on the Grand Pioneer don't really feel like part of the main fleet's culture anymore, 20 years after departing it. To make things worse, that fleet has gotten word from the Grand Pioneer that they found minerals on Pioneer's Gamble and had manufacturing set up, while at the same time the technology has had 20 years of prototyping back on Earth and on fleets behind them who have reported success in minor tweaks. So the Admiral has decided to accelerate. They are moving at 10% of light speed with enough fuel to either slow down or double their speed but be unable to slow down. By their calculation if they accelerate to 20% of light speed now, the Grand Pioneer can still manufacture the light sails and race ahead at 30% to arrive ahead of them and still drop off the solar sails they need to accelerate even more and slow down. The captain gets this news not long after agreeing to push the production timetable back a little to allow more buildup of Pioneer's Gamble as a spaceport. He's obviously in a very troubling position, he has a new calculated time sooner than planned and he must leave by then or at best he'll be trying to chase his fleet down over centuries to try to get ahead of them in some system to slow or redirect them, assuming they even have enough fuel to run life support that long. Indeed the fleet wasn't stupid, they have a backup plan along those lines they transmitted with another system, as the secondary rendezvous, but he has to decide if he's going to reverse his position and if he'll be obeyed if he does. To many of the new settlers of Pioneer's Gamble, the fleet made its own stupid decision and they'll help if they can, but they're distant people who sent them off on a risky mission, it's not their fault if they did something dumb. They've been given a timetable that requires them to be up and running and sending the Grand Pioneer on its way in just 20 more years, so they can race ahead of the fleet in time to slow them down. It's an interesting story perhaps, but it highlights how on even these seemingly dedicated fleets you can have changes of interest and perspective. You don't set off on a century-long mission without mutation. To them that original charter from Earth over 3,000 years ago is as nebulous as something like Hammurabi's laws in ancient Babylon, and even their current mission to Kepler Town would be as far back to them at its inception as the year 1900 is to us. They've changed, their priorities have changed. It's not hard to imagine this sort of event or ones like it happening millions of times over thousands of scattered fleets, 
whether big colonial armadas or just an actual garden ship growing produce to distribute to asteroid mining colonies, or freighters delivering endless food to a city planet, or moving throughout the Oort Cloud over lonely centuries to send one icy comet after another into the inner system for terraforming. Ultimately it's just the nature of space and interstellar travel that involves timelines so long, cultures can diverge even on single missions, and scales so immense that you could have a trillion cargo ships devoted to nothing but carrying raw materials into some growing Dyson Swarm whose myriad captains and crews simply don't feel tied to anything but their mission and the life on their ship. At most they might have a kinship with fellow ships that tended to travel with them, or with ships in general against the larger cultures they serve or trade with, but each one would be an island nation all to itself, be it a democracy, a dictatorship, or some form of anarchic rule, and crews might range from millions on a single colony ship to a single lone crewman, captain of their own ship, and the various AI on board. As we saw in the arc of a million years, given enough time such ships might develop their own unique ecosystems, and for the bigger ones even diverge into many specialized nations and tribes all on their own, inside that single giant ship. They might be nomadic not because they have some distant destination in mind, some promised paradise world, but rather because the ship is everything and they don't want to leave. To them, the ship is still and stationary, and everything outside is what is migrating and changing. In many ways, not too unlike Earth, which has traveled around the galaxy many times and moves through the sea of the night perpetually, but to us is stationary. In a way, we're all nomad civilizations, journeying through vast tracts of space and time. We'll get to our upcoming schedule in a moment, but I did want to give a quick thanks to everyone who has signed up for our streaming service, Nebula. If you're interested in signing up, we have started putting up all our episodes there now a couple days early and without any ads or sponsors on them. Nebula is an experiment I and a bunch of other channels started up last year as an alternative to YouTube dependence, and we wanted to give an extra incentive to join up, so again the new episodes of our show will be available there now a day or two early and without ads in them. We also have some early and exclusive content available there, like our Coexistence with Alien series, not to mention all the other excellent content on there from our sibling channels. Now Nebula is its own separate streaming service, but our friends at CuriosityStream do offer it as a free add-on if you subscribe to them, and since they have so much excellent educational content of their own, and are running a 26% discount if you use the link in the description, it's a great deal. It means you get a year of both CuriosityStream and Nebula for less than $15, and helps support this show and a lot of other educational content, which is what CuriosityStream and Nebula are all about. And again, you can get a year of both for less than $15 by using the link in the episode's description. So this month we'll celebrate the 6th anniversary of our show, and we'll continue next week with our new series, Becoming an Interplanetary Species, as we look at colonizing cislunar space and the Lagrange points. Then for our 6th anniversary episode in 2 weeks, we'll be contemplating the future of fission, and in 3 weeks we'll return to the Fermi Paradox to consider whether or not the rarity of phosphorus or other critical elements might be the solution for the apparent absence of alien civilizations. If you want alerts when those and other episodes come out, make sure to subscribe to the channel, and if you'd like to help support future episodes you can donate to us on Patreon or our website, IsaacArthur.net, which I'll link to the episode description below, along with all of our various social media forums where you can get updates and chat with others about the concepts in the episodes and many other futuristic ideas. Until next time, thanks for watching, and have a great week!